Hey everyone, a quick note before we start. I wanted to let you all know that the second season of Robin Roberts' podcast, Everybody's Got Something, is out tomorrow. Robin is someone that I've always looked up to, and her podcast is one of my favorites. You can find it right here where you're listening now or at robinpodcast.com. I want to create an environment where working mothers not cannot just survive, but thrive. I bring my kids to the office all the time. When I ride on the weekends, I bring them with me to the studios. They know how to detab waters. They know how to spray shoes. They know how to mop between the classes. And that's how we do it. It's not pretty, but we get it done. <laughs> Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week, we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. So how are they doing it? Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Melanie Whalen, the CEO of SoulCycle, welcome to No Limits. Thank you for having me. Great to see you. Uh, it's great to see you too. We've had some really fun times at SoulCycle. Yes. As the CEO of SoulCycle, do you feel pressure to work out all the time <laughs> to be on a soul cycle bike every single morning or afternoon or whatever it is. I view it more as a privilege, honestly, because I can integrate it into my work day. It's part of what we do and it's part of being a leader at the company is staying connected to the riders. And I love it because when you're on the bike for 45 minutes, the the most unsung, I think, best part of the experience is you're putting your phone down for 45 minutes. You're stepping away from all the competing pressures and priorities in your life. And you're letting someone else guide you through an experience, coaching you that you can be stronger tomorrow than you were yesterday, right? Someone is reaffirming a belief in yourself and and helping you explore the things that are going on in your head that we really never make time for. You're doing that. And you're, by the way, also getting a great workout. And so as a leader of a company or as a working mother or as anyone that's got a lot of priorities on their plate, it's really a gift spending 45 minutes alone in a dark room. So I genuinely look forward to it every day. So for people who haven't yet been to SoulCycle, set the scene okay. of a class experience. So the biggest misconception about SoulCycle is that this is just a spinning workout or an indoor cycling workout. It's so much more than that. And I do. we hear a lot that people are intimidated. I can't come to SoulCycle until I'm in shape. The best thing about <laughs> indoor cycling is that it's a... You can hide. You can... You can hide in the dark. I've done it before. In the back. Exactly. We ride to candlelight. Mm -hmm. We ride to the rhythm of the music. So it's not about numbers or data or competition. It's really just about getting in a room and listening to good music and moving together as a pack. And it's so easy on your joints. It's really low impact. We hear people all the time, I was a runner. I used to do boxing or other things. that I can't do them anymore. And now people can get that cardio experience on a bike. But it's also, it's just a lot of fun. I think we sometimes forget in life it's okay to have fun. Put down your phone, laugh, have a good time with other people. And that's really what we're creating. The bike is just the vessel. The experience is the fun, the music, the community. And that's really, that's why people stay. Your story, so... Grew up in Baltimore. Yes. Dad's an entrepreneur. Yes. So that's where you got the entrepreneurial spirit from. Absolutely. Studied engineering and economics at Brown. I did. Why engineering? You know, from a very early age, I just loved math. And engineering is really the application of math into the real world. I thought I wanted to be an architect. So if I figured out how to work what was behind the walls and how to build buildings, that I would be a better architect. Obviously, never happened, but that was the goal. So you went into corporate development at Starwood. Was that your first job out of college? It was. All of my friends were going to be investment bankers or consultants and go into these great training programs. And I really wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. So I held out to the end of the year. And somehow Starwood had, I think, forgotten to recruit earlier in the year and came. And I was the last man standing and raised my hand and said, I'll do it. For people out there who haven't done corporate development, what does that look like? How does that work? 
Yeah, it's, it's different at different companies, but for us at Starwood at the time, Starwood had gone from being a 100-hotel REIT based in Phoenix, Arizona, to being this global behemoth with 700 hotels, four or five different brands. They acquired the Sheraton and the Westin brand, and so the purpose of the team was really to figure out how to organize the brands and how to optimize them. So what else could we do within the lobbies of the hotels? Uh, they had just launched the W Hotel, so we were trying to figure out, should we partner with bar operators, restaurant operators to bring life to the lobbies? Um, so it was just a lot of different analysis, partnership opportunities, brand extension opportunities. I got to do and be exposed to a ton of different stuff. What did you choose to put in the lobbies? You know, at the time, they had partnered with uh, the Gerber brothers on, I think their business at the time was called Midnight Oil. So Whiskey Park and Whiskey Blue and all these things. That I don't know if you remember. All of their it. bars. Oh, yeah. There used to be a W Hotel. So I was in a investment banking before I went into journalism. I would work so late every night, and the W Hotel was the last place that was open. So we would, all of the analysts, all the young analysts would go for drinks at Whiskey Park Yeah, at like 2 a.m. on a Tuesday. Right. Because it was the one option we had. Right. And because we needed to like get out of the office and blow off some steam. Because that's the investment banker's happy hour, 2 a.m. Exactly. <laughs> you're not exactly happy, but you're drinking. Um Okay, so you go from Starwood to Virgin America. You're the vice president of corporate development there. Started as a manager and worked my way up. Then you ended up at Equinox. Yes. Were they in the process of buying SoulCycle? Were they looking at it? So not yet. So when I joined in 2007, my goal coming in was to start a business development function and figure out what else we could do with the Equinox brand and, more importantly, other companies or brands that we could launch or partner with to scale them. So we worked on a couple of things. We launched a brand called Pure Yoga here in New York on the Upper East and now Upper West Sides. Uh, we launched a brand called Blink Fitness, which is a budget fitness concept. They now have 50 locations, mostly in the tri-state area. Um, and then we met the founders of SoulCycle and in 2011 partnered with them and acquired a majority interest in the business with the goal to, to scale it. Uh, when we bought the company, there were only seven studios here in New York. We never thought it was going to be as big as quickly as it's become. Uh, but it was a great partnership and uh, definitely met them f later in my experience at Equinox. And when you went to SoulCycle, you started out as the chief operating officer. Yes. Now you are the CEO. Yes. What has that transition been like? You know, it's interesting. So I started to lead and build and run the operation when I stepped over, which was really just putting one foot in front of the other. And I keep saying this train is steaming down this track. We just have to make sure the track is in front of it as it goes, as we've opened eight and then 13 and then 18 studios a year across the country. Wow. Um, and, you know, it was a lot of problem solving because we were, you know, I worked with the founders. We're a bunch of entrepreneurs just trying to figure out how to make this live experience, live production business scale across the country. So stepping in from operations into the CEO seat, I think there are different um, focuses that I have now, whether it's capitalizing the company or reporting up to our board. But it's still the same entrepreneurial spirit that we had as we were all working together to build the company because we're still young. We still have a lot of runway in front of us, and we're still spending a lot of time figuring it out. What's the future? For SoulCycle or for the world? For you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this year has been a really big year for Seoul. It's been super exciting. We opened in Toronto, in Canada, so we are officially now taking our first step out of the United States, which to me is a very significant moment in the history of this company. So that was really exciting to see. We're launching a new bike this year, which we think is going to be able to evolve our workout. The Seoul bike. The Seoul bike, which we, are, we started right here on the Upper West Side of Manhattan with. And we'll be rolling that out across the country. And that's taken years of R&D to get it right and is really the foundation, not just for the business today, but for the business of the future. And we're working on a couple of other projects for later this year, um, as well as expansion into the UK next year and other things that 
I'm just I'm really excited to just keep putting one foot in front of the other and more importantly continuing to invest in the rider communities that we've created now in these 75 studios so bringing the new bike to them is really exciting we've been hearing so much great feedback so more soul cycle more riders more countries more communities i think that's the future when you look at your career at this point you've been with a number of marquee brands how did you think about those decisions along the way especially when you were making choices like going from equinox to soul cycle so I've always believed that you spend a lot of time and investment where you're working, right? Work is no longer this idea of go to work and go home and have a life. It's really fully integrated. So I've always tried to make choices based on people and based on a value system. So every time I've left, it's been really hard for me. I was never looking to leave a job. I was you weren't always, leaving angry. I've never left a job angry. I've always stayed in great touch with the mentors that I've had or the bosses or the teammates that I've had. And what I've just looked for is opportunity to grow in a different way, to be a part of something that's maybe a little bit different or giving me a different experience. But more importantly, were they great people that I wanted to work with? You know, when I left Equinox, that was really hard for me. I loved that brand. I still work really closely with them, which is great. But I love the co-founders of SoulCycle, and I felt like I could learn something different. I'd been in business development for 12 years. It was an operations role. I was able to kind of pivot my career and work on a brand where I knew I could have an impact. There were 22 of us sitting in the room behind the laundry room in our Tribeca studio, and it was different than working in Starwood or working on an airline or working at Equinox even. It was, I could get my hands dirty. But it was really, did I believe in the people I was working for? Did I believe that their value set aligned with who I was? Because you spend so much time there. And could I be learning? You know, I've learned a ton. What's the hardest thing you've learned? I would say two things. One, that people are everything. And we were moving fast and we're hiring a lot of people. And one person can set an entire culture out of its orbit. Yes. And that can be really hard to admit. I made a mistake and we need to make a change here because this isn't right for the good of the health of the business and good of the health of the culture. Um, and that's hard to, to do that when you've asked someone to come and join your team and you realize it's not a fit for them and not a fit for you. And I'm learning now how to interview better so mm. that we don't make those mistakes. And we do a lot of, we're trying to do more simulations, onboarding exercises before they're hired so that we can really understand how we're all going to work together because I think that's probably one of the, um, some, some of the biggest mistakes I've made have been around hires. What's the most useful interview question you ask? One of the things I think I've learned is just to ask them what questions they have for me. Mm. And it really shows you, has someone done their research? Is someone an intellectually curious person? Is it all, do they have a list? Or are they a more dynamic person where they're queuing off a conversation or a moment you've had How earlier in the interview? How much vacation time do I get in exactly. this job? <laughs> uh, or the worst Don't is when ask they that say, question. Or they, they say, well, all my questions have been answered, before, you know, at least yeah. up to this point. Well, I'm the CEO of the company, or I was the CEO of the company. I would think you'd want to know a little bit of just about my vision or how we mm-hmm. operate as a team or something. There, there's always a question. Um, so I think that's probably the one of the best questions that I ask is just understanding what they want to know about the company. I'm curious because your your career trajectory, you look great on paper. You, you look great <laughs> in person, but you also look great on paper. When it's felt like for you it hasn't worked out. How do you handle that? And what have you figured out as far as your own assets go for handling those situations? Understanding your own triggers, I think, has been a big learning for me in the last few years. So if a decision seems difficult or something seems frustrating or if we've made a mistake, often we can be triggered into reacting a certain way. And I think what really emotionally aware people and great leaders can do is take a step back, understand that they were triggered for some reason, they made a decision that maybe wasn't right or something didn't go as planned or they're frustrated with something, and then stopping and taking a beat and sort of resetting their framework, going back to the why 
Why did I make that decision? Why did we get to this place? And then what did I learn so that I can keep learning and maybe not make the same decision the next time? But I think that understanding of that trigger moment and then that real, real question asking of why did that happen and really honestly saying, I messed that up. Yeah. That was a mistake. <laughs> and admitting that. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to be honest with yourself. And more importantly, you have to be honest with your team. Guys, mm. I let us down the field. The play mm-hmm. didn't work. I called it the wrong way. Or we didn't see the defense coming. Now we're going to reset. Okay. There, that was a trigger moment. Now reset. And it's all about how you frame it. Okay. This is an opportunity. Now we're going to go this way. Or we're going to try it this way. It always helps to call a mentor or a guide or someone that's done it before. And I'm lucky. I've got a lot of great people around me I can ask questions of. But sometimes you don't even need that. You just need to train yourself to reframe. You mentioned earlier mentors. And I think that we always hear how important it is to find mentors. But really cultivating those relationships, it's not always easy. Uh, How have you done it in your career? Yeah, I think... uh, a mentor, and we were just talking about this as a team earlier this week, a mentor is really someone who you look up to, who has a series of experiences in their life that you either aspire to have or want to learn from, someone that can give you guidance as you're making decisions, as you're going through your own career. And I've always tried to stay in really good touch with the bosses that I've had that have helped me make decisions in the jobs that I'm in currently. And then when I've moved on to other jobs, the framework with which they evaluated those decisions is always helpful no matter where I am. Um, so I just think back to the first boss who took a shot on me at Starwood. He's one of now my closest friends. I still text with him at least you know a couple times a week. I haven't made a decision in my career without calling him. But hmm. the reason that we've been able to do that is it's a really it's a two-way relationship. It's not I call him when he's not a guru sitting on a mountain who I call when I need something. He's someone that we're friends now. And if he needs something, he's got two young daughters and I'm helping one of them with something that they wanted to do as well. And I think it's important to give and take like any great relationship. They get some free soul cycle classes. A thousand percent <laughs> and gear when it comes out. Definitely. But you know, going to them when you don't need something I think is probably yeah. the most important thing that you learn over time. Too often, and I and I get this a lot. People will call me and say, "I need advice right now." Well, I haven't talked to you in two years. Now you're mm-hmm. calling, but if I see you once in a while and I hear from you once in a while, you know, and I, I also think you say thank you. You know, when he helped me make a big decision that had a really great benefit in my career, he's the first person I called to say, "Remember when you gave me that advice?" Well, I took it, and here's where it got me. So just paying it back, yeah, and making sure you're fostering that relationship two ways. What's the worst advice you've been given? Oh, great! That's a great question. Um. Some of the worst advice has been around trying to make this very clear boundary between your work and your life. You know, you should step away from it if you're not getting out of it what you need, or you should really try to separate your work and your life. You're putting too much into it, too much time, too much passion. And I think great things come from putting your passion and putting your heart in. I don't think there is that much of a divide. And I think as, again, a working mother, you have to learn how to make it very integrated and very fluid. And it's new. We're all learning how to navigate a world that's connected 24-7. And I think the advice that is more founded in the past has not served me well. And more thinking about the future and how we can evolve has been some of the best advice. So how do you integrate it? How in in real terms, how do you make it happen? So the first thing I always say to people is it's not pretty. So don't expect it all to – it might look good on social media. Um, but I have a great example. I was giving a keynote speech at my alma mater. I was so honored to be asked to go back. And my husband found out that his father was sick in Australia and had to go home for two weeks. So I had my kids. I had the speech. 
and I needed to be somewhere for work the next day. So we all got on the Amtrak together. We got into the auditorium. I asked them to sit in the back. They refused to do that. So we did it together, the three of us (laughs) on the stage. And that's how you do it. Every day is just another day where you're trying to do all of the things you need to do. And sometimes it's not going to be as perfect as you want it to be. And just accepting, I said, I am a working mother and I'm here to tell you how to do it. And this is part of it. Here are my two kids on the stage with me. I just think you have to do what works for you and what you can do. I feel very lucky that I work at a company that was founded by women and is now led by women. 86% of our field managers are women. And so I want to create an environment where working mothers not cannot just survive but thrive. I bring my kids to the office all the time. When I ride on the weekends, I bring them with me to the studios. They know how to detab waters. They know how to spray shoes. They know how to mop between the classes. And that's how we do it. Like I said, it's not pretty, but we get it done. <laughs> I love that. Um Speaking of things for working moms, given you said 86% of of your field managers managers are women, what are the things for others who are listening who are either building companies or in the position inside of their own company to help create a better working environment for working moms and and women, what are the things that SoulCycle does that you think could be a lesson for these other companies? Our entire philosophy on training and development, we say, is freedom within a framework. So we're going to teach our instructors how to lead a soul cycle class, but then we give them the freedom to do it in a way that's authentic to them. Their playlist, their message, their choreography. But there's, there's a format to how we do it. And it's not unlike how we run our business or how we run our studios. There's checklists of what need to get done and there are rules that we ask people to follow. And then we say, now you need to break the rules because you're in your studio. You know better in Calabasas, California, how to solve that rider issue than I'm going to be able to tell you how to do from New York City. And so by creating what I think is a very entrepreneurial spirit within the company, it gives people the permission to integrate their lives in a way. You know, we we ask our managers to work one weekend day because that's important. It's the biggest fitness day of the week. If that doesn't work for you because you've got a new baby at home or a husband that needs to travel, we're going to find a yes for you in that so that this can become a flexible work environment. And I think I really do feel for some of my friends who are in more structured institutions that don't have the flexibility. Mm -hmm. And I think what Julian Elizabeth did really well from the start is to create a working environment that was flexible, that gave freedom within a framework, and that enabled all of us to do what we needed to do, whether that's breastfeeding in the office or going home for a music class at 10 o'clock in the morning, which I did when my son was born. Because you know what? Those 10 other women that were sitting in the music class with me, they all came to SoulCycle the next day. So it, it serves the business and serves the community. And it made me feel so enrolled in working there because I felt like these people know me not just as the head of operations, but they know me as a human being. Mm-hmm. So accepting where people are and giving them the freedom to to sort of do it in the way that they need to do it best, I think is one of the things I've we really tried to do. You know what I love about that statement is there's the framework. And then once you understand this is what our mission statement is and this is what we stand for, you take it and you create with it what you want. I, <laughs> I did a project a long time ago on um, Picasso. Um, and he said, destroy to create. And for whatever reason, that always struck me because I look at his art and he started out with a blue period and a rose period and he painted everything true to life. And he mastered Mm -hmm. the art of painting everything true to life first. Yes. And then he became an abstract artist and got into cubism. And I think a lot about that with careers where, you know, in the beginning, you learn the foundation, you learn the principles of how something works and how it operates. And then you get to a moment in your career where you start playing because you figured out the rules and you figured out the playbook mm-hmm. and then 
that's where masterpieces get created. Yes. Because that's where you bring your passion and your individualism to what it is that you're building. You're not doing it somebody else's way or the way the masters did it. You're doing it in your interpretation of that way. Where do you feel that happened for you in your career? For me, it was absolutely when I started at SoulCycle because it was a different, as I said, a pivot in my career. I'd worked in bigger companies. I learned the fundamentals of financial statements and corporate finance and how to build a business plan, how to build a management team. And that was all great training in my 20s. But then to go and actually apply it, I never went to business school. So it was like going to business school. You're writing a business plan and you're executing the business plan every single day. So soul cycle for sure. Melanie Whalen, great conversation. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Talk to you soon. And now for this week's No Limits Entrepreneur. One of the reasons I'm excited about this entrepreneur is because she's a fellow University of Chicago graduate. Megan Driscoll is the founder and CEO of Evolve MKD, a PR agency that started from a small office in her apartment and just two years later has become a full-service firm. Since it began in 2014, under Megan's leadership, Evolve MKD has doubled its revenue, the number of clients, and its staff. Megan, thank you for being a part of the No Limits community and for sharing your story. Best wishes on the path ahead. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a review. It really does help get the word out. And don't forget, you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. Special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. Taylor Dunn, Michelle Bancardo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, Steve Jones, Annie Osakwe, and Elizabeth Hecht. And join me next Tuesday for an all-new episode of No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis. Until then, take care, be well. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.